So wonderful to see all of you here this morning, and what a glorious day it is. The sun has arisen in more ways than one. We are grateful for that. This is a wonderful time of year for the Church of Jesus Christ with so many who are worshiping our risen Savior on one of the highlight days of the church calendar each and every year. If you can help me figure out uh, why it keeps switching by describing or defining the vernal equinox, um, I'm all ears because I have no idea how that all works. Probably some of you who are engineers uh, who know exactly why uh, Easter changes just about every Sunday of each year, sometimes in April, sometimes late April, sometimes early April, and sometimes late March. So um, I have no clue, but I'm just glad it comes once a year, every year. In fact, I was telling the Sunrise uh, Service people that if these theologians historians and exegetes are right, then that means that today, April 4th, might very well have been the actual date and day, of course, that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. April 4th, 1988 years ago today. Now, that's an amazing thing to think about. And we want to welcome all of you here who are here for our Easter service. We had a wonderful Easter sunrise service. Uh, I think someone counted and there were 76 persons who came at 6.30 this morning and uh, who saw the sunrise as we were worshiping outside. And it was, it was phenomenal. And so I am grateful that you have come at the 10.30 service uh, you probably thought that maybe 6.30 was going to be a too, too, too uh, early and uh, a little cool, and they were both that. But at 10.30, it has warmed up, and we are ready. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to spend... All of my time in the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to be giving a very different kind of message on Resurrection Sunday. It's not normally a message that I might give, though it does in the latter part of our time together have a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I was reading through the Gospel of Luke recently through my regular Bible reading through the year. If you do that, you've probably been reading through the Gospel of Luke as I have. And I cheated a little bit because I was in a portion of the Gospel of Luke and I became so transfixed on some things that I was reading that I cheated and went and read the entire Gospel of Luke, though I'm not supposed to because we're still reading through it, and I think we're maybe somewhere around Luke 11. Or, and so 
I just uh, cheated and I went through the whole of Luke's gospel. And I'm reading the other readings, of course, uh, as they are presented to us. I've got a little 365-day Bible where it just gives you an Old Testament portion, a New Testament portion, the Psalms and the Proverbs, which if you read through all 365-day readings, you can read the Psalms and the Proverbs twice, I believe. So that's uh, what I'm doing this year. And when I was reading in Luke's gospel, I became, as I said, transfixed by eight critical statements by our Lord Jesus Christ from his own lips, captured by Luke the historian, that are critical and astounding and frankly audacious statements from our Lord Jesus Christ. If he weren't the righteous one, if he weren't the holy one, the perfect one, I, like you, would be reading these statements and I would be saying something like this, what an audacious, proud man this writer or this speaker is. Because these are, these are astounding statements about both Christ's person and his work. And because of that, I began to make a few little jotted notes because in each of these eight critical statements about our Lord Jesus, he mentions in each one of them something about himself, and it comes through in our English text. I'm using the English standard version of the Bible. It comes out with something that's connected, he says, about me. Every one of these phrases, all eight of them. Something he wants us to hear and to listen to and respond to and obey and to think and to ponder about Christ. And he says it explicitly about me, about me, about me. He says that over and over and over again, eight times. Until you hit what we could call the, the pinnacle in Luke's gospel. And that, of course, does, in fact, include the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only this, but the resurrection of Christ and his post-resurrection ministry to a couple of saints. And these are quite simply remarkable, astounding, stupendous. And I'm not sure, even though I've read the Gospel of Luke many, many times, I'm not sure that I picked up on these things as I am picking up on them now. And I want to share those with you this morning, not just for effect, but for a day like today, Resurrection Sunday. We have both church members who are regularly with us and guests also. Some of them are like you sitting here. Some of them are outside on the patio. Some of them are down the hallway in a more secluded room for their safety's sake. Some of them are available to us by live streaming. So we have several different ways that people are listening to this message. And I want to talk about these eight critical statements by our Lord Jesus Christ where he says, and this is the title of our message, Jesus says, what about me? 
what about me? And for the first of those, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. This will be the first of those eight that we'll go over, and this one we'll put under the title, Offended by Me. That's the first of these eight statements that Jesus is going to make here in the Gospel of Luke about himself and about how people respond to him. Under that point, offended by me. Now, we don't have a lot of time to be able to develop the context, and so I'm going to go very, very fast. I'm going to make some levels of assumptions that you are going to track with me even though I can't give you all of the context, but I can at least give you a few statements about the context, and here is the context of Luke 7 jumping right into the uh, first couple of chapters here in this gospel. And Luke 7, verse 18 says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. What, what kind of things were they reporting? Well, they're reporting all of the works and words of Jesus. And John, referring to John the Baptist, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, that is, to Jesus, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, I don't think that John the Baptist is asking his disciples to go to the Lord Jesus for John the Baptist's sake. He knows all the way back from the baptism that he performed on Jesus when there was a miraculous voice from heaven from God the Father. And if you remember, there was a miraculous occurrence with a, a, a figure like a dove descending on Jesus, which was emblematic of the Holy Spirit. And this voice from heaven coming from God the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And in John's gospel, it makes it very clear by the pronoun that's used that that was actually a revelation personally, not to the crowd, but to John the Baptist himself. So it's not like John the Baptist doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that very well. What's he doing by taking his disciples and telling them to go and ask Jesus this question? Well, John the Baptist knows that his ministry is coming to an end, and so he wants to draw the allegiance of his disciples away from himself now to Jesus himself. John had disciples prior to Jesus' public ministry, and now he knows his end is at hand, and he now says, I want you to go and ask Jesus this question, and once you hear such an answer from him, you will know why I have sent you to them. That's not in here, but that's the intent, I'm sure. So, they do go to Jesus, and when the men had come to him, they said, verse 20, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. 
And he answered them, them being John the Baptist's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then this incredibly provocative statement. And blessed is the one, that is anyone, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, even if you didn't know the context of how I just explained some of the verses prior to that incredibly audacious statement, you could still understand by the statement itself, without even needing the context, that if you're talking about a man who has healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and restoring the sight of the blind and the lame he's miraculously healing so that they walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, you should not be, especially as a Jewish person, unclear as to who this is. You should not be unclear at all. Yes, this is a man He's a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and yes, he has lived for 30 years essentially in his own home base, and yes, he's begun to embark upon his ministry, and yes, these things are astounding, and the very fact that they are astounding should convince us all that this is no mere man. Something special about him, unique unsurpassed, incredibly alluring. I want to follow him. I want to be around him. I want to hear his teaching. I want to know him. He's rabbi par excellence. I, I, I want to obey his teaching. I, I, I want to be with him. I want to be surrounded by others so that we can continue to ask him questions and, and to see the power of his person and his message. And then as a bolt out of the blue, this statement comes, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why why does he say such a thing? I mean, when you're talking about so many stupendous, miraculous signs and miracle workings that are enumerated here, Why does Jesus have to mess it up by talking about being offended by him? I mean, that's that's entirely too negative. Why why, why does he even have to bring that up? What's what's the point? Well, I suspect the point, one chapter before this, chapter 6, verse 22 might explain it. Not everybody's going to be thrilled that this miracle worker's in town. And I suspect the religious leaders are at the top of that list. They're not liking the fact that the people are clamoring after Jesus. They don't like the fact that there are people who are wanting to follow him and hear his teaching and the kind of teaching that sometimes in a major way steps on the toes of these religious leaders. And as a result, they become very angry. 
so angry that they want to trap him and entrap him in either questions that they ask him or perhaps that which we know, of course, is leading up to Jesus' own crucifixion. And Jesus knows that in the crowd, there are going to be those people who are neither here nor there regarding him. Some are very much against him. Some are somewhere in the middle, and some have become rabid followers. And Jesus is preparing for those who are going to try to be dissuaded by these Jewish religious leaders, not only not to follow Jesus, but to be in league with them against him. No wonder he prepares them in Luke 6.22 by saying, blessed are you, those who are following, those who are the 12, my chosen, my apostles, my disciples, and others who are following me, blessed are you when people, what? Hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, and then notice the next phrase, on account of the Son of Man. You see, Jesus knows that there are going to be people who are certainly yes for him. But though there are also many people who are very much against him. And these, these people aren't nice about it. The ones who are against him, they want to kill him. Their hearts are evil and wicked. I mean, Jesus is healing the blind. And he's also talking about the bloodthirstiness of these religious leaders, and he pronounces woes on them. He says in chapter 6, verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And then these denunciations, these woes, those are woes in the sense that they are condemnations. And of course, lurking in the crowd are these religious leaders who are fomenting their charges against Jesus. And Jesus, seeing all of these things as clear as can be seen, knows that in the midst of the followers, there'll be a myth Uh, 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 in the midst of them, detractors, evil, wicked. And so he sets up this incredible statement there in chapter 7, verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I could put it to us in this declarative statement. Blessed are those who are not offended by Jesus Christ. I could even say this is a... 21st century version of stating the same thing, isn't it? This is, this is so readily applicable. I mean, in our day and age, if you and I were to stand up in a crowd of people and just say something as seemingly innocuous as this, because I'm only telling you my truth. You heard that? 
your truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And if I were to stand up and say, just to a small crowd of people, I love Jesus Christ, you'd have immediate convulsive reactions on the part of some. What do you mean? Are are you saying that that I don't? Or are you saying that I can't worship this God? Or are you saying that I can't do it my way? Well, that's your truth. It's not my truth. You, You strike me as one of those persons who might be one of those persons of exclusivity who are saying that the only way to God is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what you're saying? And if you said, that's what the Bible says. Oh, well, then now you're throwing in the Bible thing. You know, if you read through the Gospel of Luke and you're reading along and you're seeing this fomenting hysteria of these religious leaders and their followers who don't like Jesus at all, perhaps we'll understand why he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed. Joyful. Blessed might even be rightly translated as enviable. Enviable are those who are not offended by Jesus Christ. Jesus even says in chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? You do not do what I tell you. I mean, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a statement that says in the reverse, you better do what I tell you. Why aren't you doing what I'm telling you? And, and then he puts it right in the, Solar plexus, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. It's built on the rock, the rock of the revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 49. These are the ones who are offended, but the one who hears and does not do them, does not do what Jesus tells them to do, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You see what he's doing? Just giving an illustration. They would have understood that very well. And I can, I can hear some in the crowd. Listen, you pompous, audacious person? Are you claiming that you are Lord? Uh, the, The rabbi of all rabbis, the teacher of all teachers, are you claiming that we are not doing what we must do if we don't do what you tell us to do? Jesus, that sounds awfully exclusivistic. I mean, I can just hear it now. I can hear it on, in our 21st century ears. There are many paths to God. Have you ever heard that? There are many paths to God. You can choose your own path. In fact, you should. Just be open-minded. You know what the Hebrew word for open-minded explains? Somebody who cannot think 
they're open-minded. You'd better close that mind to the things that aren't true. You get yourself in a lot of trouble. In fact, so much trouble, you're constructing a house on nothing but shifting sand so that when the, the floods come, when the rain disperses, when the thunderstorm hits, when the tornado smashes against that house, great will be its fall. So Jesus is talking about himself and his ministry, and he says very clearly, blessed, happy, enviable are those who are not offended by me. Try that on for size in our century. Try that on for size with someone that you're talking to and say, blessed is everyone who's not offended by Jesus Christ. Or even ask them in a kind of penetrating question, are you offended by Christ? Are you offended by his gospel? Are you offended by his teaching? He said in John 14, 6, of course, that no one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, he's, he's giving that exclu- ex, uh, exclusive uh, kind of, there's no other way but me. There, there's no other path. There aren't all paths leading to God. Now, they say they're leading to God, but those paths are another God, small chair. They don't end up going there. They end up going in the opposite direction to another God, small g. Couldn't be a, another God, small g, called yourself. Jesus Jesus is saying, enviable is someone who's not offended by me. What a claim. What what a claim. I could never make that claim. You could never make that claim. But he makes it, and he makes it clearly, and it is unmistakable. And here's the second one. He talks about being ashamed of him. Look at chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. See, all I was doing was I was just reading along here, And I got through with chapter 7, and I got through with chapter 8, and then I started reading chapter 9. And when I got to chapter 9, I found Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me, not just offended by me, but ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I mean, what an audacious statement. I mean, can any one person say it so starkly, so matter-of-factly, so absolutely, so authoritatively? If you're ashamed of me, he says, and my words, that means his teaching, the revelation about himself, when I come back to the earth with the glory of myself and the glory of my Father and the holy angels, I'm going to be ashamed of you. I mean, that's where, frankly, most people just say, You see, that's why I don't like this Bible. It's just, it's just like this or that. I want, I want options. I I need, I need a little leeway here. This is, this is way too exact. And 
yet this is what our Lord Jesus Christ has said. And I say it like this, rescued are those who are not ashamed by Jesus Christ. Rescued. Rescued from our sin. Rescued from our plight. Rescued from certain doom. It, it, it has to be that way. You, you say, well, how does it have to be that way? Well, notice back in verse 18 of this same chapter, Luke 9. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. But who do you others uh, that one of the prophets of old has risen? Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Boy, what a great question. Take, uh, take your man on the street interview. You got the microphone. And it's, it's readily available. You've got your uh, camera phone. You've got your, your microphone. You've got the opportunity for anybody, whether they have skill or not, and you all see them on YouTube, whether they have skill or not, and they just go up and they just ask, most of the time, inane questions that don't have to deal with anything, certainly anything eternal. Try someone, an evangelist, for instance, going to the corner with the microphone. People are coming by. And you're asking them the question, who do you think is Jesus Christ? What, what kind of response do you think we're going to get? I'd say probably a thousand different responses. And almost that many probably extremely negative. Don't talk to me about that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want that name. I don't care. Get out of my way. But you also might have someone say, he's my dearest cherished friend who saved me from my sin. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's the God of the universe. He's God in human flesh. I mean, Jesus wants them to know. And there's Peter, front and center. He might have been like the first guy on the man on the street interview. The Christ of God. That means the Messiah. The Messiah of God. Well, great answer. And then inexplicably, verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Why? Because even if they told them, nobody would understand it because he goes on to say, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And of course, all of them would say, what is he talking about? What is this? I just said you're the Messiah. And the Messiah comes to, to his people, Israel, not to die, but to take over. To, to upend all of this Roman oppression. Instead, he says, don't, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ of God. Why? Because they have to die first. Huh? Die first? What do you mean die? Oh, and then I'm going to be rising from the dead on the third day out of a tomb and then we'll talk. And they're saying, you just blew our circuits. We don't have any idea. We don't have one clue what you're talking about. 
And then he says in verse 33, uh, verse 23, excuse me, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? Now you know the context, verse 26, the very next statement. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. So, I mean, with, with two power gut punches here in Luke's gospel, right, at, right in the stomach, he says, blessed are those who are not offended by me, and secondly, blessed are those who are not ashamed of me. A lot of people out there, are offended by Jesus and ashamed about Jesus. Number three, just in the next chapter, chapter 10, and here's another me moment of Christ. Here's another statement about him. And again, if you're, if you're not following closely and if you don't know who this is, this son of man, you're going to say, boy, this guy sure likes to talk about himself a lot. He's just constant references about himself. Me, 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 me. Doesn't he ever think about anything else? Well, if you're the son of God and you're perfect and sinless, you can talk about me all you want, right? Because he's declaring a message. This is a message of truth. And here's here's what he says in chapter 10, verse 16. He sends out disciples. And he's sending out his own disciples, and he's already done that, and now he's going to send out 72 more according to chapter 10, verse 1. And when he sends them out, he's going to warn them, some people are going to receive your message and some people are going to reject your message. And he says this, verse 16, the one who hears you, that's the person who doesn't reject but receives. If they hear you, then they hear me because I'm speaking through you. I'm giving you the message to teach. You teach the message just as I have given it to you. And if they respond by receiving this good news of the gospel, that you can be delivered from your sins, and if you repent, if you turn from your wicked ways, and you receive this Messiah into your heart and life, and if you depend on him for everything you are and do forever, they're going to hear from me, Jesus says. They're going to hear that they can be delivered from their sin. But notice the opposite. And the one who rejects you rejects whom? Me, he says. You know, I think he's also preparing these evangelists by letting them know that if they reject you, yes, they're rejecting you, but ultimately speaking, they're rejecting me. So so don't let it be all about you. Just know this. They're going to scorn you and beat you, and they're going to laugh at you and mock you and deride you, but blessed are you because you're not offended by me like they are. And blessed are you because you're not ashamed of me like they are. And when you lead them to me, lead them to Christ, the one who hears you hears me, but the one who rejects you rejects me. And it's not just me they're rejecting. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's God the Father. So if blessed are those who are not offended 
by Jesus Christ and rescued are those who are not ashamed of Jesus Christ, then received by the Father and the Son are all those who hear the good news about Jesus Christ. So here's the message of today. Here's the piercing message to the heart. Are you offended by Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Do you receive or reject Jesus Christ? That's, that's really the, the question of the ages. There's a lot of questions in this world. Who should I marry? What house should I buy? What job should I have? What friends should I gain? I mean, there's a lot of questions. And a thousand more of those. And they're not unimportant questions. They're just not the greatest question. And the greatest question is this. Who is Jesus Christ to me? Is he, frankly, someone I'm offended by? You say, not offended by him, but mostly his followers. Well, we stub our toes a lot, don't we? But if God is working in such a heart, maybe I better check more into this Jesus Christ. Because I think I can go past the stumbling, bumbling followers who are giving me his message, and I think I can just see Christ for who he is. They can tell me about him, and I'll concentrate on whether or not I'm to receive or reject him. And if I receive him, blessed are me. Blessed are those. Blessed are you. But if I don't, I'm rejecting Jesus Christ. Number four. Here's another one. Luke chapter 11, just the next chapter, which means I don't think that Luke, when he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these chapters, that this is happenstance. This is not happenstance at all. It's not coincidental. We're going chapter by chapter, and here in chapter 11 is yet another one. Look at chapter 11, verse 23. Whoever is not with me is what? against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Look, I'm going I'm to send you out with a message. You're going to get basically two main responses. There may be a, a lot of people who say, well, I'm going to take your track and, and I'm going I'm to think about what you've told me. And they sort of put you in that awkward middle. I'm not, I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. But you'll often, probably more often than not, get one of those two other responses. Either get out of here or you've told me something I've never quite gotten before. Tell me more. And, and this is where we are. And, and maybe we are in the realm of those who say, get out of here, Christ. Get out of here, you, you would-be Messiah. We don't want to listen to you. And so he, he's just warning his followers. He's warning his fellow evangelists. If you're not with me, you're against me. And you know, maybe even some of those followers of his. That's certainly true out of John's gospel, John chapter 6, where it says in John chapter 6, verse 66, and some of his followers followed him no more. Which means... That if people are offended by 
Jesus and by you and me, and if they are ashamed about Jesus and about me, and if they are rejecting me, actually say they're fine because they're rejecting Christ, we're going to have some who initially say they're following and then they fall away. So if you're not with me, that is, you're not totally with me, if you're not totally committed to me and my message, then you're against me. Which is to say this, committed are those who are not against Jesus Christ. Committed are those who are not against Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying something like this, you got to be all in. You got to be all in. Oh, I got to be all in? Yep. You got to be so all in that if you go back to chapter 9, verse 57, he gives the cost. Chapter 9, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And you say, boy, that is a committed disciple. I'm going to follow you wherever you go, no matter what, no matter the cost. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, this is not going to be easy. Late nights, early mornings, hardly food, being rejected, being offensive, being brandished as one to whom other people, mostly other people are totally ashamed of us, our clothing, our message, our person, our breath, everything. They're just not going to like us. They don't like our message. They don't like anything we're doing. And then verse 59, he encounters another. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And of course, you and I are thinking, well, that's, I mean, that's, there's priorities in life, and I've got to do that before I can follow. And Jesus, he spies that right out. He knows that's not a full follower, and he says, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not harsh. It's truth. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. It's half-hearted. Half a disciple, which means not a disciple at all. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You've got to be all out in this. You've got to be sold out. No wonder he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And then there was sort of an unlikely person in this same chapter, chapter 11. Very unlikely person, verse 27. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's someone who's totally sold out. Totally sold out for Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you have to, from 9 to 5, take a placard, stand on that same street corner and say, repent or believe. You know, repent and believe, repent and believe. Nobody's saying that, but we're saying with your lips and with your life, you are a stupendous follower of Jesus Christ. You love him. And you know you're going to have rocky days serving him and proclaiming him. But committed are those who are not against Jesus Christ. Are you for or against him? There's no middle ground. really isn't. For or against. You say, you know, 
Lance, I was looking for a nice, noble resurrection message. Well, you know what? This is part of it. This is really part of it. This is like the, um, the initial exam so that we can say, I'm ready to die with him. And, you know, there was a guy named Peter who said that too, right? And then he denied the Lord three times. And then the Lord three times in John 21 had to say, Peter, do you love me? Do you? I mean, there's commitment here. Why? Because there's a lot of people who are going to say they're followers and then they get offended by him. They're going to say they're followers and they're going to be ashamed of him ultimately. They say they're followers, but they're going to be against him. And they say they're receivers when ultimately they turn out to be rejectors. Number five, deny me. Offended by me, ashamed of me, against me, reject me, deny me. Deny me? Yeah, look at chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. And I, and I would encourage you just to write these verses down as I give them to you. And as I read them, just write it down and I want you to meditate on these. This is a clarion call for discipleship. It's what, it's what we're all about as professing Christians. Here's another one of these, Jesus saying, what about me? There's another me moment. Here it is, Luke 12, 8, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God, the theater of the angels, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I mean, Jesus is into the all-in business, isn't he? Because he knows that all the cares of this world, all of the temptations and the allurements, all of the, the things that you and I could be tempted to do so as to avoid full commitment of Jesus Christ, But oh, how blessed are the acknowledged because they do not deny Jesus Christ. They're not deniers. They acknowledge him, it says. And who does it say they acknowledge him before? It says men here. You know what I think about that? I think about that early church. I think about the first century. And how did they acknowledge Christ before men? In their baptism. That baptism was a public declaration of someone's faith. And I can hear someone now, oh, but, but, you, but you've got it all wrong, Lance. My Christianity is entirely personal to me. I don't, I don't talk about my faith. I don't sort of wear it as a badge of honor on my lapel. My, my relationship with Jesus is very personal and very private. Well, I could, in some ways, if you want to go against the semantics of what someone is saying, yes, it's very personal in that sense, but it's not private. Public. It's a public declaration. 
I tell you, he says, which means listen very carefully. And I tell you, everyone, notice that 100% language, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge. Acknowledged are those who are not deniers of Jesus Christ. Do you affirm or deny Jesus Christ? You never know when you're going to die. Never know when you're going to take that last breath. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be many years from now. None of us can count on it. We need to know. You're accountable to this message. That message of truth is here. Don't deny Jesus Christ. Don't do it. Acknowledge him. Love him with all your heart. Serve him. Ask him for forgiveness. Turn from your wickedness. That was, that, was, that was me. I was a freshman in college, and I was as cocky as the day is long. You could probably tell that. And I, I, just, I just so was into myself and the world and, and all of the things that glittered before my eyes and what I was going to become. And, and by the graciousness of God, I started asking these eternal questions. Well, who am I? Where am I going? What's the plan? What's life all about? And someone in God's great providence had given me a Bible to take with me to college saying, you're probably going to need this. And I saw it collecting dust on the shelf. And with these eternal questions being asked in my heart, I pulled that dusty Bible off because I no longer wanted to live a dirty life. So I started reading the Gospels. And I read the Gospel of Luke. And I thought, I can no longer deny him. I want to acknowledge him before men. And see, that's... That's what happens in the watching world. You, you say, world, I love Jesus Christ and I will go to whatever cross I may need to bear so that I am declaring, not just through the waters of baptism, but also through the walk of my life, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I fall and stumble in a hundred and a thousand ways but when I do, I seek forgiveness, and by grace, He grants it, and by love, He keeps receiving me back, with the granting of forgiveness by saying, this is why I died on the cross for you. So don't deny. Number six, and, and by the way, we've got 15 minutes left. And I want to remind you that these five that I've just given you, I recognize fully and completely this has been a bummer of a message. I'll be the first to admit it. Now, these things are real. They're eternal. They matter. But it's been entirely negative. Can I be, po can I be positive? I'd love to end on a positive note, okay? And that's what number six is. I love this. Here's a living illustration. Look at Luke 23. 
It's a living illustration of a negative turned into a positive. This is the, the man who was one of the thieves on the, on the cross beside Jesus. Luke chapter 23. This is a great time for Jesus to give us another me moment. I mean, when you're hanging on a cross and you're about ready to die, you need a Jesus me moment. You, you need some encouraging word from Jesus about Jesus and what he can do for you. Look at verse 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. In other words, in a demanding way. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Do you not revere God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, dude, Do you not understand that we're deserving what we get? He's not. We deserve to be condemned. And he goes on to say that. And we indeed justly deserve our condemnation. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And I can think right back to our first point. Blessed is someone who's not offended by me. This guy's done nothing wrong. He's the real deal. We're not. We need to respect him and revere him. You're not doing any of that. God has brought me to my senses. And then he says, Jesus, verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, that means you can bank on it. I say to you, here's the me moment, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. Now, you can't get any more positive than that. Yeah, the negative is a bummer. Being against Christ, rejecting Christ, ashamed of Christ, denying Christ, Yes, and there are going to be those people in the world. And they're going to be ashamed of you, and they're going to reject you, and your message. But out of that number could be your moment with somebody that you can lead to the Messiah by saying, if you believe in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins, you can be with him in paradise. And God will open that heart of regenerating power and show them the true gospel. I mean, this is outstanding. And so I say to you today, in paradise are those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. In paradise. Oh, this world's passing away and praise God for it. We need a new world. We need a paradise. And it's coming. I say mark it by the very truth of the verities of the Word of God that it is coming. Now, there's a lot that has to happen before now and then, but it's coming. Are you desirous of being one day with Jesus Christ in paradise?
And that's the takeaway, isn't it? It's got to it's be the great question. And if you believe from the very lips of Jesus himself while he's hanging on a cross, you can be with me in paradise. Number seven, this is so good. And this is really why you came, because this is about resurrection. Touch me. Touch me. Look at chapter 24. Touch me. It's another one of those me moments. Touch me. Chapter 24, verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, the disciples, Jesus had already hung on that cross. He'd already been entombed. And now he's resurrected. That's what you came to hear about this morning. Resurrection. He's been resurrected. Hallelujah, he's resurrected. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, stood among them and said to them, peace to you. (laughs) Those are going to be sweet words in heaven. No conflict. No railing. No quarrels. Peace. Equin. Serene. Peace to you. And no wonder verse 37 says, and they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, an apparition, a phantom, a ghost. Why? Because they're still in that process of trying to come to grips with the idea that the Messiah said that I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm setting my face like flint, I'm going there, and they will kill me, but I will rise from the dead. And they don't understand it. They now are trying to understand it. And he says in verse 38, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? In other words, can't you see the scars now on my hands and feet? You you were standing there. You, You saw them nail me to the cross. And there may not be greater words here. Touch me and see. Touch me. Boy, that's a glorious me moment right there. Touch me. Touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And he's not even done. Verse 41. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, but but it was a disbelieving and a joy and a marveling that was all kind of mixed together, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Why? Because he wanted to show them further evidence, further proof that he really had been raised from the dead, and that he can eat, and that he's still a man, and that he's got these scars, and I want you to touch me, and I want you to see that I am have arisen. We could put it like this. Affirming the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are those who 
truly spiritually see. Because it says, touch me and see. Now, I know the see there is touch me physically, touch my arms, touch my side, touch my feet to see that they were those hands and side and feet on that cross. But I certainly believe that he's saying, and I want you to see something spiritually. I told you I was going to rise from the dead, and it happened. It happened. Do you now see what you should see? I'm alive. I'm the Messiah, never to die again. That's what he says in Revelation 1. I was dead, but I am alive evermore, no longer to die. Do you see it? Do you see it? If you're sitting here today, do you see that? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No? I believe it's hocus pocus. I believe it's what you believe. I'm convinced that you believe it, but I don't believe it. Why? If, in fact, you have your eyes open, you'll see. And notice what the next verse says, verse 44. Then he said to them, these words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He opened their minds. Then they saw And then perhaps all of these passages in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is another way of saying the totality of the Old Testament was revealed to them in a flash. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Now I don't have to touch, but I can see. In fact, that's the eighth me in this text. Do you see it in verse 44? That everything written about me. I mean, isn't this amazing? I just, I was just trying to read Luke's gospel like any self-respecting Christian. I just doing my duty. And I kept seeing these what about me moments. Eight of them. What about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? And I was lost in wonder, love, and praise. Those might be the most eight critical questions of all time. And and he says, if you look at the law, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, I'm the fulfillment of it all. So he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, Verse 46, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And guess what? You are now witnesses of these things as well. I just read it to you. Now we need to go to all nations. Tell them. Tell them the message. Because in the preaching and in the scriptures, notice the preaching. These are my words that I spoke to you, verse 44. That's preaching. 
And then he says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the scripture. So in the preaching and in the scriptures are those declarations by and about Jesus Christ. Okay, I have my marching orders now. Here we go. I've got all these me statements. In fact, I think you could probably take those me statements, condense them down far more shorter than an hour message, and use this as a gospel track for people. If you want to know about Jesus Christ, let me tell you about him. And give all eight of them. Take these passages. Just read them to him. And if they say, well, I don't know what that means, and you'll have to explain this, and what about... To say, let's, let's just read it again. Asking God to open their minds to understand the Scriptures. And I guess for us, the takeaway is, do you proclaim and point people to the only messianic hope for salvation ever proffered to the world? And it's Jesus. Nobody else. There's no other name given under heaven, Acts 4.12, whereby we must be saved but at the name of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. All those other would-be saviors, presidents, emperors, kings, presidents, they're dead, and they're going to die. And Jesus died, and he rose again from the dead, and he's the only one that could actually be the one, the only one, who can make such audacious claims. What about me? I mean, if I stood up here this morning and I gave you a sermon and I gave you eight ways for you to think about me, this place would be empty by next Sunday. And it should be. Because it's not about me. It's about him. It's about all of these things about him. And he's the one setting the agenda. Eight times, what about me? What about me? What about me? I just want to be lost in trying to live my life about him. And you should too. Do you love Jesus Christ? Then tell somebody about him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I fully recognize that this is not a a normal Resurrection Sunday message, but it is culminating in the person and work of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, who says, touch me and see. See that I was dead and am alive evermore. Father, Open the eyes of the unbelieving. Bring them to a place of acknowledging that perhaps those first five negative statements of the Lord are true of them, that I've been a person who was offended by him and I ashamed of him and rejected him and I don't care about him. And now I'm coming to a place like the thief on the cross where I know I deserve my punishment. I know that I 
I'm lost without these clearly profound claims. And so I better run to him. Jesus, please forgive me. I've I've been offended by you long enough. I don't want to be ashamed of you. I don't want to reject you. I don't want to live for you. Whatever days you have left for me, I want to turn from my sin and I want to embrace this resurrected Messiah, this hope of salvation. I want to acknowledge my sin and I want to ask for you to forgive me. And I want to live like that thief for 20 minutes or 20 years of what you've been left to give me in my life. And I want to humbly ask if I could be with you in paradise. Would you receive me such as I am the sin of my heart. I've wrecked my life. I've offended other people. I've trashed relationships. I, I have to acknowledge that to myself and to others. And I ask that you would make sure that in paradise your life has been exchanged for mine your perfect righteousness, your holiness, your loving character. Touch me and see. Open my eyes to the truth that the whole of the Bible is about you, Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about making me wealthy and healthy and successful. It's not about a great family. It's not about everything that I'd ever want all my dreams coming true. It's not about those things. If you give those things to me, I, I would gladly and gratefully receive them, but I, I'm not focused on them. I'm focused on being right with you. And I ask you to open my mind and my eyes to the preaching of your word and to the fulfillment of Scripture that you are God the Father's answer to my sin problem. Please, Grant me forgiveness. And please start me on a whole new life that I can acknowledge before men that Jesus is my Savior. And one day, he will acknowledge me before the holy angels in heaven. Father, thank you for this message. May it be a message of hope that we would be with you forever in paradise. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.